Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. I always feel like I sound like I'm suppressing laughter as I start this show every week, and I, I think it's honestly because I genuinely can't believe I get away with this. Like, I get to make a piece of art every week that I think some people are actually listening to and hopefully enjoying. I, uh, it's, 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 it's a beautiful feeling, and, I, and I, I hope that all of you out there listening to this feel somewhat connected to me in the way that I feel somewhat connected to you. It's, I'm so hopeful about the world, and I think that as we all sort of are coming out of our little cocoons during this, this upcoming year, it's going to be really good to see so many of you again in person, and also to see what you've been doing and to connect again. So at least at this moment, as I sit here in my little cabin talking to a tiny recording device, I feel very hopeful. And I, I hope you feel hopeful as well, because, uh, you know, there's reasons to feel hopeful. Um, you know, there, there hasn't been a, a, a new Star Wars movie in, in almost three years, and I, that makes me very hopeful. So, <laughs> I don't even know if that number is correct. I, I, I didn't think that joke, joke out very well. I, I gave my, my writers the week off. So, uh, <laughs> writers, as if I could afford that. Anyway, enough about current events. Let's, uh, let's start the show. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Darkon. I'm going to plant my flag and say that this is film about live action role players, or LARPers for short, is my favorite documentary of all time. It wonderfully depicts various participant experiences as it follows a ragtag group of underdogs taking on the most powerful in-game faction. If you are unfamiliar with LARPing's peculiar combination of Dungeons and Dragons, Renaissance festivals, and Civil War reenactments, this is a delightful introduction to this whimsical subculture. The game's epic competitions play out during special weekends wherein hundreds of players gather, camp out, and engage in mock combat with blunted foam weapons. 86 words left. The secret to this documentary is its Herzogian tendency to just let the principals speak at length, often unedited. These folks care so much about something so strange, an alternate fantastical world that lets them escape their mundane lives and become warriors and wizards. This is humanity at its strangest and most quirkily passionate. If you aren't fully invested by the time an epic confrontation goes down at a Denny's in the dead of night, I weep for your ability to enjoy things. Here's what I've been reading. The Dragon Reborn by Robert Jordan. So I'm about halfway through the third book in the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. 
I was not expecting my myself to enjoy this as much as I am. I mean, like, it's not great, but it's not bad either. I would say that 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 the Wheel of Time is the Domino's Pizza of fantasy novels. Does that make sense? I I feel like I don't want to like damn it with faint praise, but like what I'm getting at is is like. I mean, to, to, to be clear, like, I love Domino's Pizza in a very, like, workmanly kind of, like, normy way. Why am I using words like that? Anyway, I like Domino's Pizza in that, like, I know exactly what I'm going to get, and it's pretty okay. Like, it's a really solid three stars for me. And and three stars is, like, it's, it's not the best pizza I've ever had. It's not the worst pizza I've ever had, but it's the most predictable pizza I've ever had. And most of the time when I'm ordering pizza, I just want to know exactly what I'm getting. Like pizza is not the food that I'm adventurous with because pizza doesn't fit that like part of my life that, that needs adventurousness. Does that make sense? I hope so. <laughs> like... If, if I'm ordering pizza, it's because I'm tired, I've had a long day, or it's the end of the week and I just want to relax or, you know, whatever. Like, I just want to, I just want something homey. And that's Domino's Pizza. And that's the prose of Robert Jordan. And I, I, again, it's not an insult to him. It's just like, I don't find these books particularly challenging, but they're fun. They have great little anecdotes, you know, it's it's a lot of the fantasy tropes that we all love, but they're just they're just executed well. It's cozy. It's like the cheers of fantasy novels or the Bob's Burgers of fantasy novels. I, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh I have some thoughts on it probably next week, but yeah, for now, that's what I've been reading. <laughs> Here's something I've been mulling. Nothing is special. There's this verse in the Bible that says, Nothing under the sun is new, neither is any man able to say, Behold, this is new, for it hath already gone before in the ages that were before us. Speculative cosmology and other theoretical fields have a similar concept. The idea goes like this. If something is possible, given the age and size of the universe, it is likely to have happened more than once. Therefore, if we're seeing something, it has probably already happened before, and if it's likely to have happened, then it has. A listener to this podcast messaged me last week and asked if I had recently started smoking pot. The answer is no. I just have way more mental energy since graduating from uni, so obviously I'm trying to fill that void with deep thoughts. Your mileage as to whether or not they're interesting will definitely vary. A specific example might help here. You are doubtless familiar with simulation theory, the idea that our entire universe, from the galaxies and quasars all the way down to the atoms that make up your hand, is a very detailed simulation running on a computer of staggering complexity. Nothing about that is technically impossible, at least according to the mathematicians. Uh, mathematicians. You might even be able to build a simulation within a simulation. The constructs within the simulation create their own supercomputer and have it start running a simulated universe, so then it's just turtles all the way down. Following on this is the realization that if it's possible, then it has probably already happened, because what are the chances that we're living in the first or 
top-level universe, which is not already contained in a simulation. What makes us so special, in other words? If a simulation is possible, then we are probably already living in one. The same goes for anything which might be cyclical, like the post-Big Bang expansion and subsequent heat death, or maybe Big Crunch endings for the universe, perhaps the birth of the, quote, next universe out of a black hole or some other cosmic singularity. If any of that can happen cyclically, what makes us think that we are in the very first loop? Sure, you could point to any number of religious cosmologies that imply creation ex nihilo, which is, I think that means out of nothing, but is it really out of nothing? Many of the ancient legends explaining where all the people and trees and fish and grass and Starbucks and roller skates came from usually have some kind of before or proto-world. It might be a dark place, but it usually still has concepts like up and down or water. There's often water. Even the Bible-thumping crew has to admit that their own book's opening includes the lines, and the earth was void and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the waters. We'll just leave to one side the fact that the book of Genesis was lifted from the Jewish Torah. Suffice to say, not even that was new by the time Christians started waving it around. Point is, rather than something out of nothing, there seems to have been something before. Prurient t-shirts and a total misunderstanding of how evolution works aside, this all brings to mind the classic question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Speaking of sex, well, maybe not sex specifically, but rather the fact that every single young person in history seems to think that nobody understands it like they do, that they, like, totally invented it. I can still remember figuring out how to masturbate and being absolutely certain it was going to make me rich. Why is it that so many young people end up believing that nobody has experienced the human condition to the apogee that they have discovered? I think this is because many older folks treat the excitement of the young as, at best, laughably misguided. My own religious childhood was full of conflicting misinformation about everything from the age of the universe to human sexuality. No wonder I thought I needed to call the United States Patent Office. In retrospect, the fact that 12-year-old me made surreptitious inquiries about patent filing regarding my <clears throat> discovery is not that weird. Being a homeschooled kid, a big part of my education was decidedly hands-on. No pun intended. I didn't just read books about Lewis and Clark. Oh, no. That summer, my parents piled us into the station wagon and we drove to every Billy and Merriweather site within a thousand miles. I didn't just read about the mythic fur-trapping mountain men. Not good enough. My mom found a reenactor somewhere and got him to demonstrate his musket for me. He even let me fire it. Knock me over. I, I didn't just read about Thomas Edison inventing... venting things. I built my own electric motor out of coils of copper wire. It still bothers me that I was fed the Edison mythology so strongly. I mean, that dude was stole everything. But he was practically a saint in my household as a child, right up there with Henry Ford, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan. Goddess, I had a weird childhood! It's probably because my father is a first-generation immigrant, so he's got such a mythic view of the American dream. A big part of that American mythos, at least for my family, was this legacy of invention, whereby a normal person invents something, makes a patent, and becomes rich. 
This was further reinforced by the fact that from the time I was eight to my latter secondary school years, I was an avid reader of popular science and mechanics. So, you know, I had invented something. I needed to patent it. It was my ticket to Easy Street. Where was I? Ah, nothing is new. Yes. This can sometimes be troubling, especially for an artist. I constantly hear other artists insist that, quote, everything has been done. And it's easy to feel that way. Just look at every young person who insists that they are creating a new kind of art. More often than not, they just end up making the same tired shit. In fact, I feel like someone creating new art is almost the easiest thing to spoof. Art School Confidential did this so well. Or how about Danny Kaye's delightful spoof of self-important physical theater inexplicably sandwiched in the middle of White Christmas? Choreography! I know that's not how the song goes, but you know the song I'm talking about. You know the song I'm talking about. So if there's nothing new, what's the point? Oh boy, this question gets to me. But I think it comes down to the night infinite possibilities in recombining a small handful of elements. During my morning run this morning, during my morning run this morning, who writes this? During my run this morning, I passed a small group of recycling bins waiting for collection at the curbside. There were nine of them, three each of white, blue, and red. Aside from a swelling of Russian pride and the realization that I needed to put my own bins out when I got home, I was struck by the realization that the three stacks of identical bins were all in different orders. In fact, you can make six different combinations of the three bins. White, blue, red, white, red, blue, blue, red, white, blue, white, red, red, blue, white, red, white, blue. If you take the nine bins I saw hanging out together and you recombine them into stacks of three where you allowed more than one of the same color, not only would you annoy the bin collector when they came by, you would also increase the amount of possible combinations to 27. Musical chords are another example of this startling rise in complexity. You know, G major up to E minor and then down to C major followed by D major then back to G. There are only 13 possible chords to choose from if you count sharps and or flats. You can count the minor chords and get it up to 26 and yes I know there are also diminished chords, sevenths chords and so on but at some point it just becomes minute variations. You're kind of stuck with those basic 13 or maybe 26. There are non-Western systems that use different inter intervals or shift their tunings around, but on the whole, human music sticks within fairly comprehensible geography. Technically, you can walk all the way off the map if you want to. I once met a musician who insisted he was creating new scales of music by using tones in between the standard ones. He insisted that there were more notes in the scale, and he was the only one who had ever found them. His discovery might have been a bit more compelling if his secret tones were in any way intentional and repeatable. Instead, he just sounded like someone poorly scratching on a violin. He was a white boy with dreadlocks. Did you need that information? Take those 26 possible chords and recombine them in groups of four without repeating any chords in the group and you get something like 14,950 possible combinations. That's a lot, but still not infinite. And yet, from that somewhat limited vocabulary, you get all of music. Regina Spector, Bjork, Samaras, Sigur Rós, 
Sarah Shea, and Nickelback. Not every combination feels as good as every other, and many songwriters do tend to stick to some basic tracks, but the potential for variation, even within the well-trod pathways, never ceases to amaze me. Speaking of only having 26 of something to recombine, what about the English alphabet? Every author writing in English has, with some minor exceptions, such as the archaic s or long s, had only 26 letters to work with. You know, I spent 15 minutes going and like figuring out how to type the long s with a ASCII on my keyboard because I'd forgotten the key combination after writing my piece. Anyway, I realized that none of you can see that, so I hope some of you go and look at the script for this on the Patreon just to see that I learned how to type that character. Anyway, recombining just these 26 letters has produced the soaring highs of Shakespeare and Catherine M. Valenti, the delightful degeneracy of the Bloodhound Gang, and the utter dreck of David Schmader. 26 letters in nigh-infinite combinations can produce all kinds of new and interesting things. As the music example above noted, not every combination has good mouthfeel. Some combinations of letters are far more satisfying, such as the word prodigious. I don't know why I like that combination of 10 letters so very, very much, but I do. Prodigious. Perhaps the greatest recombinative language is the four-letter one written in the DNA of all living things. With just four letters spelling out what could be called words in various combinations, our bodies store the instructions to make dozens of amino acids from which we build ourselves from the bottom up. I barely understand the process, but the sheer amount of variety being communicated along a string of language written with only four unique letters is staggering. Actually, with so many activities, when you start to contemplate the sheer complexity possible from variation, it is almost enough to make you give up. Not because everything has been done, but precisely because there is no way you could possibly make a dent in the amount of things that haven't yet been done. In the first 20 hours, Josh Kaufman does some quick back-of-the-envelope maths and calculates that there are 2.08 times 10 to the 170th possible courses for a single match of the popular board game Go. Or, as he breathlessly puts it, there are more possible legal games of Go than there are subatomic particles in the known universe. Unquote. So what am I getting at here? If making something new is nigh impossible because everything that could possibly exist is statistically probable to already exist, and at the same time I'm saying how difficult it is to express all the possibilities, I think for me personally it comes down to how it feels to make it, which is something it is always so easy to lose sight of when things like awards or audience reactions overwhelm our joy of creation. While a hundred billion humans before us have discovered the joys of kissing, and other attendant behaviors that remain unpatented, they can never completely overwhelm our personal enjoyment of them. Sure, someone else may have written a song before with those chords in that order, but who cares? The one you're playing is the one you're playing. There may not be anything new under the sun, but my friends, there are all kinds of things new in this particular moment. So go make them. And maybe, if you're feeling really lucky, File for a patent. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. What's this now? Final destination.
Can you make a compelling slasher film without depicting murder? While that question may seem to indicate an oxymoronic prompt, the truth is that the 20-year-old inaugural Final Destination film did just that. Things kick off when one of the leads has a vision of the plane they are sitting on exploding. In a flailing, shouting altercation that is laughably antiquated in a post-9-11 world, the boy and a few classmates, as well as one teacher, are thrown off the plane. When the vision comes true and the airliner explodes, the teen and his friends soon realize that they were <clears throat> supposed to die in the explosion. They were supposed to. You know, it was supposed to happen. So now death itself is hunting them. Yep, the monster, villain, slasher in this flick is death itself. Well, I said death and then a tree branch fell on my roof. I wonder if you could hear that. Uh, and by golly, I had so much fun with it. The conceit is that since the initial kill did not happen, death must now create ever more complex Rube Goldberg-esque sequences of events in order to off the teens. The kills are delightful, with numerous red herrings being introduced to make you think a particular thing is going to cause the death before revealing that, nope, it was the shea butter all along. I actually just made that up. I didn't want to spoil any of these if you end up watching it. Half the fun is trying to puzzle the deaths out before they happen. If all of that sounds like some utter bananas underpants on the outside of trousers nonsense to you, well, you'd be absolutely correct. And yet, it is kind of endearing at the same time. While nobody is more than an archetype of a character, it is fun to see so many of the traditional rules of teen slasher films abandoned. Even more so as this is not done in the showy, look at us for being so self-aware way that films like Cabin in the Woods or Scream made so popular. This is just a film about people who are suddenly in danger from normal, everyday objects. Things like stairs, toothbrushes, bowls of kiwis. Again, none of those things are actually in the film, but I'm starting to think maybe I should write one of these. Speaking of being self-aware and subverting rules, a big part of the mechanics of this film is that there is an order these kids are supposed to be dying in. And if one of them escapes the order, switches to whoever is next in line. The upshot is that nobody ends up getting punished for their behavior. No teen loses their life for having sex, and being nice to people has nothing to do with how long you live. It's refreshing because I ended up kind of liking a character I initially hated. The cast is pretty fun too. You've got a fresh off American Pie, Sean William Scott, bouncing around as the comic relief character. It's really fun to see him in this mode again. I do appreciate the way the dude diversified as his career went on with action fare like The Rundown and Bulletproof Monk and earnest comedies like Role Models, but I can't lie, I kind of miss the goofy kid he used to be. Everyone else in this movie is playing things totally straight, but Scott falls through every scene like he's Ahmed Best, and nobody told him this was a Star Wars film. I wish that the Darth Jar Jar theory was true and we actually got that reveal. I would have driven to Skywalker Ranch and kissed the feet of the Unterbeard. Also worth noting is a delightfully nutty cameo from Tony Todd, who shows up to explain the whole plot of the film in a scene that honestly feels like the script said... I don't know, have Tony Todd say some creepy shit. Whatever they planned, Todd nailed it. Here's a crazy idea. Let's have a Peter Lorre biopic starring Tony Todd. If you don't think that would be entertaining as hell, I feel bad for you, son. And besides, it's my brain movie. Let me have it. My favorite character, though, is Ollie Larder. As... Clear Rivers. Really? Well, okay, 
So as ridiculous as that name is, if you watch the credits, she's actually named after the assistant of the writer-director of the film. Is James Wong? James Wong had an assistant named Clear Rivers. So it's like the most ridiculous possible name for a movie character, but it's actually a real person's name. Anyway, this was before she broke out into a tough badass action hero with roles like Parking Meter Baseball Bat Lady in Heroes and Claire Redfield in the Resident Evil films. I love those movies so much. And they're all good at being what they're supposed to be. Mia Jovovich is the queen of action movies. I don't care who knows I feel that way. I want to see her kick something all the time. I want to see her kick everything in the universe. How is she not in a Marvel film? How is Ali Larder not in a Marvel film? How is she not playing superheroes every day? Can someone get on this? Where was I? Final Destination. Is this a great film? No, not in the way that other 90s and turn of the millennium classics are, but it holds up in a weird and delightful way. I can't say it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Mailbag. I got a package in the mail from Mr. Aaron J. Shea. Um, it's a book. Let's see. Aaron is a very dear friend of mine who listens to the podcast sometimes, and let's see what he sent. Ooh. It is a book by Stephen Bruce, who wrote Cowboy Fang's Space Bar and Grill, which is a favorite of mine. That was a very good book. It says, uh, Dear Strangely, I hope this package finds you well. It has come to my attention that for a couple of your most recent podcasts, there had been no surprises in your mailbag, and I decided to change that. Thank you. Be the change you wish to see. Direct action gets the goods, etc., etc. To that end, please enjoy this book, To Serve in Hell by Stephen Bruce. It's a retelling of the War for Heaven myth in a very modern fantasy style. I don't want to give away more than that, but it might be something you're into. It's a very intriguing read. Here's to sharing air together again someday soon. Your friend, Aaron. Aw, oh, thank you, Aaron. And uh, this book does totally look like it's right up my alley. Oh, it's even printed in the same font as Cowboy Fang's Space Bar and Grill. This is going to be a very cozy read for me. If you have something that you would like to send in to me uh, here at the podcast and, you know, you, you can send me books that you want me to read. That's a great thing to do. Uh, you can send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 11, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. That about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and an extra special thank you to all of my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast happen, especially my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. Without you, I would not be able to buy the materials to make the waffles I'm about to eat for breakfast. You're the best. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duesberg. And uh, that, that's it. You can, you can check out patreon.com slash strangely to find out how you can help me make more of this podcast. As a special thank you to Patreon supporters, I've started posting my scripts for these episodes so you can see what bits of weirdness were intentional and what just happened. 
Anyway, that's it for this week's episode. I'll see you all next week. Bye! Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.